Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Chapter 3. San Diego Restart. In 1978, a Harvard researcher named Paul Zemesnik and colleague Mary Stephenson published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences titled Inhibition of Arouse Sarcoma Virus Replication and Cell Transformation by a Specific Oligodeoxynucleotide. It showed that by using a short, single-stranded piece of deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA, it was possible to slow a virus's ability to replicate. Zemesnik and Stevenson published a second paper on their work at the same time, but in truth, the concept had larger implications than just that. When DNA is unzipped in the nucleus, a sequence of precursor ribonucleic acid, or RNA, is formed from one strand. That precursor RNA is then transformed into messenger RNA and released into the cell cytoplasm, where it is translated into a protein. DNA and RNA are made of nucleotides, and the pattern of nucleotides in messenger RNA that codes for a protein is called a sense sequence. The sequence of nucleotides that is exactly complementary to that sense sequence is called the antisense sequence. What this work pointed to was that if oligonucleotides, which are just short strands of nucleotides, could be created to bond to the sense strand in the cell cytoplasm, it would be possible to manipulate protein production. And that would have tremendous applications in the fight against disease, well beyond stopping viral replication. The most used descriptor for this antisense technology among scientists is the word elegant. Beautiful might be another term. Partially this is because the technology is so simple and attempts to harness something already present in nature. But also because it is extremely specific. It uses the Watson and Crick discovery that DNA is a double-stranded molecule held together by hydrogen bonds between complementary nucleotide bases. That Watson and Crick hybridization means that antisense drugs, if crafted correctly, could bind only to the desired target RNA and nowhere else. This specificity has long been sought after in drug development. It is a holy grail of sorts. The term antisense would become synonymous with Stan Crook, and antisense oligonucleotides would define the rest of his professional life. From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope, Lies, and Dreams. Roseanne Snyder had grown up knowing she wanted to be a scientist. And by the fourth grade, she'd narrowed that focus down, specifically, to making drugs. She followed that path all the way to grad school and the University of Pennsylvania Pharmacology program. Before making her choice to enroll, she met Stan to see if she'd fit into his lab. Because she loved pharmacology, she wanted the close tie to industry that Stan's lab promised. When she met him, she immediately picked up on his intelligence and felt his lab would be a great place to learn but beneath that, she could also sense that he was hard-driving and demanding. She went home and told her husband that if she could survive Stan's lab, she could survive anything in the world. 
and she asked to join his group. Once she was there, she began to see the other side of Stan, the warm, affable side that earned him all those teaching awards at Baylor, the soft side that comes out when he's focused on patience. She was stunned, she said, to find how nice he could be, how caring he was to his PhD students, encouraging them to come to him with questions, night or day. She was aware of Nancy's illness and, like everyone else, saw the physical toll it took on Stan, who grew so thin in Nancy's last year. And while in his lab, she began to have issues with her own personal life. Her marriage was dissolving, she said, and she carried the stress of that with her to the bench. Stan, who knew something about using work as a lifeline, told her to focus on her research. Something you can control, he said. That helped. It also helped to get out of the house and to exercise. She began playing tennis with some other grad students on Saturdays, and Stan, just still in his late 30s at that point, joined when he could. A true friendship formed. When Roseanne's marriage was over, and after Nancy had died, their friendship changed into something stronger. In their own way, they'd each lost someone. Each watched a future they'd once envisioned disappear. They helped each other through the process, talked about it. And when it was in their respective pasts, they were able to look at each other in a new way. I don't know, Stan told me. We just came together. He and Roseanne were married by the end of 1986, about two years after Nancy's death, and a year after Roseanne finished her PhD. They are still together today. That was the first step toward Stan rebuilding his life. The second thing he needed to do was get out of SmithKline, because the company was in dire financial trouble. It had publicly predicted annual growth of 10%, and that was not going to happen, with Tagamet under fire from Zantac. Stan himself knew the end was near when he got a call from SmithKline CEO, Henry Went. I get a call one night from Henry saying that he's got bad news. And instead of being 10% a growth in profits, we were going to decline profits by 30%. And that we had to announce it. Uh, when I got that call, I decided that it uh, there was no way that, that Smith Klein was going to survive. And certainly I wasn't going to be running R&D. Because remember, I had to re retool all of R&D. And it was still, you know, there's still much work left to do. And there, was, there had been nothing in the pipeline. That phone call was the beginning of the end. Stan wanted more time to finish what he'd started with his research division. But he knew that when SmithKline announced that massive drop in earnings, it would open the company up for a merger and would severely curtail research spending, neither of which was he willing to support. He also knew, in the back of his head, that if there was a merger, as it looked like there would be, his dream of someday being CEO of SmithKline was probably over. In typical Stan fashion, through a series of meetings with the top echelon of SmithKline, he openly expressed his distaste for their plans. That didn't help matters. He made it clear that he would not stay if the company was going to consider a merger or cut research, and it also became clear that SmithKline didn't want me, Stan said. So it was only a matter of time. Well before SmithKline let him go in 1988 and laid the blame for their empty drug pipeline at his feet in the New York Times article, Stan was thinking of what might be next, and he had an idea. It came from a symposium series he and George Post, Stan's second-in-command, had put together at SmithKline. Sometime in 1987, Stan thinks, they brought in Paul Cho, a biologist from Johns Hopkins University, working on oligonucleotides as antiviral and anti-cancer agents. As Cho presented his work, in the audience, Stan sat up a little straighter. The idea itself was seductive, he said. 
It was rational and used nature's own solution to specificity, and it appeared to be a simpler way to make drugs than building proteins themselves. Stan dug up the original Zemesnik papers describing antisense. It had been nearly 10 years since they had been published, and for many of those years, the idea had languished. Partially, this was because no one could quite reproduce what Zemesnik had done, and that made it easy to dismiss. But also because making DNA segments at that time was expensive and labor-intensive, which meant the raw material needed to do experiments was basically out of reach. Since those seminal papers on antisense, the field had progressed hardly at all. Though Stan had gotten approval for a handful of new cancer drugs while at Bristol, and the franchise he built there had helped advance cancer treatment, he knew those drugs were shotgun blasts to the body. For all the damage they did to the cancer they were aimed at, they hit a lot of other stuff too, and he hated that. There had to be a better way, and antisense seemed like the answer. Stan took the Zemesnik papers and went looking for Dave Ecker. Dave Ecker's family is originally from Mount Carmel, Pennsylvania. That's coal country. His grandparents on both sides worked in the mines, and his father did too, until the mines closed in the 50s and the family moved to New Jersey for factory work. Dave became a first-to-college kid, attending the College of New Jersey, and then he earned his PhD in biochemistry at Utah State University, before doing a postdoc at the University of California at Berkeley. He has a good sense of humor and a sharp mind for details and history. This is him. He came down to my office. I mean, he was up here as the head of Worldwide R&D, but he had his own research group, of which I was one. And he came down with a publication from Paul Zamechnik, and he plunked it on my desk, and he said, look at this concept. You know, think about this. If you could use oligonucleotides as therapeutics, they have this Watson-Crick specificity, and, you know, there is no better specificity in biology than than what the Watson-Crick interaction. I mean, that's how nature stores information. That's how nature transmits information. And he says, wouldn't it be awesome if we could make a category of drugs based upon that kind of specificity? And so that was, um, that was ground zero. Stan acknowledged antisense was light years away from being a therapeutic, but he still wanted Dave to try to run some experiments. SmithKline's merger with Beckman Instruments in 1981 had given the company access to a DNA synthesizer, a short-lived model not as good as the ones being made by Applied Biosystems, but it allowed Dave to make DNA, and that meant he could actually begin to explore oligonucleotides. It was slow going. Any oligo you put into plasma degraded within minutes, Dave told me, and for a while they didn't make anything that mattered. Dave spent his off time thinking about what chemical modifications were possible to entice the oligonucleotides to last longer in the body, and then one day Stan floated a proposition. You know, it was, it was uh, 1988. I remember it was the summertime. And um, uh, because he was busy, he was head of worldwide R&D for a major pharma organization. Uh, we had to steal time whenever we could to go over our research, right? And so, you know, I would go on the weekend, like on Saturday, I'd go out to his house and we'd shoot some hoops of basketball and I'd bring my data from the week and we'd sit and talk clients and so forth. And, uh, when we were done one day, he said, I'm thinking about starting a company to do antisense. And, and we would leave um, uh, SmithKline. And, and I said, okay. <laughs> uh, 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 would you like me to come along? And he said, absolutely. He said, I'd like you to help me get it going. SmithKline had yet to fire Stan. But in his mind, he was already gone. And he'd formulated an exit plan. What Stan wanted was an organization that would focus on science, 
and science alone. It would be built around R&D, his strengths, and it would have nothing to do with the marketers or the salespeople who are currently getting more attention at SmithKline. If that top rung he'd been reaching for, big pharma CEO, was gone, he'd need to find some other way to lead the kind of company he thought drug development needed. He just wasn't sure what form that might take. Back when he'd been at Bristol, he'd been friendly with one of the company's finance people, Mark Skaletsky. Mark understood the ways in which drug research could be funded, and Stan went to him for his thoughts. Mark sent Stan to a venture capitalist he knew, named Chris Gabrielli. Chris had once been a medical school student at Columbia, but his father, a physician and researcher himself, had gotten the family into financial trouble with a few pipe dream ideas, and Chris had to drop out. For lack of any other way to make money, Chris began shopping one of his father's ideas to those same VCs who were never willing to back his father, he said. But with Chris behind the idea, it was better received. He founded a healthcare software company, named it GMIS, and eventually sold it for $250 million. That earned him in 1986 a position at Bessemer Venture Partners, a venerable name in the VC world. Chris Gabrielli knew nothing about drug companies, but Genentech, a young flagship biotech on the West Coast at the time, had recently gone public, and Bessemer thought this burgeoning industry might be worth investing in. It wanted Chris to launch the firm's healthcare practice, and this meant that Chris was actively looking for biotech investments when Mark Skoletsky told him about Stan. Chris thought Stan at least would be a good person to meet. This is Chris. So when I first met him, he was in a uh, awesome office inside a new research and development building that he took a lot of pride in having helped built. Yeah, and he, he was a commanding presence. He had a huge office. He was a you know he's a commanding individual, as you know. The next time I met him in person, he had been relegated to this type of site that SmithKline, I think, sent people who were definitely leaving. So he was at SmithKline Chemicals, and he was in this chemicals factory in a sort of a crappy little uh, office that, you know, so he had been demoted slash moved out slash something. You know, even then, I mean, I was very respectful of him. He was an MD, PhD. I was 20. Um, seven or 28 years old. He was, you know, 40 something. 40 something, yeah. Yeah. So I certainly, I certainly didn't say, like, well, you seem to be downwardly mobile here. But <laughs> it was clear that something was going on with Stan and Smith Klein. The former head of worldwide RD was now stuck in an off site office with chemical trucks groaning by on the highway outside the building. In their meetings, Stan asked Chris what he was looking at for investments. Chris had been researching a young company called Vertex which was built around a protein crystallography technology that the founders hoped would open the door to new drugs. Vertex would, of course, go on to be a massively successful company, today valued at more than $50 billion. But the science back then was not revolutionary enough for Stan. He told me, well, protein crystallography, we all have protein crystallography. Like, why is that a small company? What's the edge? Um, so I thought that was a pretty good argument. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, what's, what, well, okay, so what's a better idea? And uh, he said, well, there's this thing called antisense oligonucleotides, which I've always thought would be interesting, but I can't even get my own people to research it. It's too risky. I wrote down phonetically antisense oligonucleotides. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what that word really meant, but Stan didn't seem like the kind of guy you should admit your ignorance to. So uh, (laughs) I wrote it down like I pretended I knew what it was. And, you know, he explained it pretty well. And I read some more about it. And uh, so that's how, you know, when I, when I said to him, okay, well, what's your better idea? He told me what his better idea was. Soon enough, 
Chris would see the article in the New York Times blaming Stan for the empty pipeline. That did give Chris pause. But in truth, in those meetings, he was taken with Stan's intelligence, his experience, and his conviction behind his best idea. While out looking for investments, Chris had already sensed that the academic scientists and mid-level farm executives who were populating the nascent biotech industry at that time knew nothing about making drugs, he said. But here was Stan, a man who had lived a big pharma life and had already ushered several drugs to the market, and who was also a top-level scientist. This combination seemed worth betting on. It helped that Chris himself had been an entrepreneur and knew what it took. Entrepreneurs, he thought, perform best when cornered, when they are in a desperate place, as he had been when he'd been forced to drop out of medical school. Failure was not an option for him at that point, and he got a whiff of something similar from Stan. I believe entrepreneurs succeed because they have no other choice, you know? And so here was a guy who had succeeded and then, you know, had this black mark. And I thought he is going to do, this is his best idea. And he is going to, you know, kill himself or others trying, you know, that's all you can ever do. Right. And then the idea seemed big and the guy seemed driven. And besides all that, it is difficult to hear about the machinations behind Antisense and not marvel at its simplistic beauty. The problem was that even Stan didn't know exactly what to do next. He thought they could finance a leveraged buyout someplace, get a chunk of money on loan against the assets of a small pharma company, install Stan as the CEO, and run it solely as a research unit. That would give Stan total control over operations, and they'd focus on Antisense. But Chris was a venture capitalist, not a banker. What's that old saying, he said to me, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Chris knew startups, and so everything to him looked like a startup. And he was convinced that was the correct vessel for Stan's anti-sense dream. Stan agreed. Now all they needed was to construct the bones of the thing and convince Bessemer to write a check. So I said to him, you know, look, I'm interested. You know, you'd have to have like a business plan. Three or four days later, a full business plan, not perfect, but pretty damn good shows up, right? He's that kind of guy, right? I look at this thing, I go, I love this guy. I want to work with this guy, right? Because you know, and like normally people would take a month or six months or they'd say, I need you to hire me a consultant who writes business plans. And it was a pretty good business plan, right? And, um, you know, we dove right in. Chris went to his partners at Bessemer and asked for seed money. He came back with $50,000 and handed it over. This was the beginning of the company in July, 1988. Stan would be officially let go from SmithKline in a matter of weeks. And with that money, they would begin to build an anti-sense company. Stan and Roseanne's house in Bryn Mawr became an incubator of sorts. Chris Gabrielli is listed early on as a co-founder of the new company for his role in its financing, but the three scientific founders were Stan Crook, Dave Ecker, and Chris Mirabelli. Chris Mirabelli had gone to pharmacology school at Baylor for his PhD, mainly because they offered him a free ride, he said. And Stan was his thesis advisor there, back when Stan was still at Bristol. When Stan moved to SmithKline and needed to start a molecular pharmacology department, he asked Chris Mirabelli to come aboard upon completion of his thesis. Mirabelli had been at SmithKline about eight years and risen to director of the molecular pharmacology department. He'd been investigating oligonucleotides with Stan, though they hadn't been able to get SmithKline executives to embrace it, Mirabelli told me. He was an obvious fit for the new company, and Stan asked him to join. Stan Crook, who had lost Nancy and left behind his boyhood family, was creating a new one. He had Evan and Roseanne, and now his old students and co-workers were rambling around the house too. Roseanne remembers that time as exciting, a handful of people always seemingly gathered in the kitchen or the living room, 
yellow legal pads in hand, talking about oligonucleotides, with her right there in the middle of it. What were the hurdles to using them in the body? What might their toxicology profiles look like? How could they be manufactured? How could they be delivered to the patient? And how would the Food and Drug Administration regulate all this? There's a lot to consider, but it did not seem insurmountable. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. First, the new company would need an intellectual property lawyer and to raise an official, sizable amount of funding. They also needed a name. Stan figured he'd call it Crook Pharmaceuticals, but it was quickly pointed out that his last name was a branding problem. For a while, they thought they would call the company Mercury, after the fleet-footed messenger god in Greek mythology, playing off the concept of messenger RNA as a drug modality. But the branding was off there, too. No one was going to buy drugs from Mercury Pharmaceuticals. Dave Ecker came up with Isis, the Egyptian god of healing, and that name stuck. The other big question was where to place it. The biotech scene was growing in two main areas of the U.S. then. The Bay Area in San Francisco had Genentech. Cambridge in Boston had Biogen and Genzyme as flagships. The ISIS team considered both locations, but Stan leaned toward California. Mainly, he said, because the weather was better. Real estate in San Francisco was already too expensive, but Stan had frequently flown to Carlsbad during his time at SmithKline to visit a Beckman Instruments division there, touching down into tiny Palomar Airport. He remembered the area around the airport as being mostly undeveloped. Carlsbad is some 35 miles up Interstate 5 from San Diego, and he sent Chris Mirabelli out to scout the area, with the difficult job of trying to explain to potential landlords what ISIS as a company was and what they would need. So I went and I ended up getting introduced to the, um, the landlord of what was called the Santa Fe, I think it was Santa Fe Railroad Research complex or whatever it was. Yeah. There was no biotech going on in it. Yeah. And so I remember going and beating this guy and start to tell him what our business plan was. And this guy is looking at me. Yeah, what, are you talking about? what are you talking about? Dave Ecker made trips too. So I, I drove up here um, uh, and scouted around and found uh, this street called Faraday Avenue it was dedicated to being like a, like a future science park, except there was no science on it at the time. There was Golf, golf companies and all kinds of other things. Um, but somebody had envisioned science somewhere along the line because the streets are all named after scientists. So <laughs> we found a nice spot and, and, and we leased a half of a building. And, uh, you know, now again, uh, um, you know, 1988, 1989, uh, the notion of building out a lab was foreign to any architect or building firm in the area. So, you know, I, I had to go sit with the, my chemistry. We, we had hired uh, somebody to do the chemistry. And the chemist and I, we went down to an architect and we sat down and, and uh, the architect says, well, you're going to build a lab. I mean, so what's in a lab? I said, well, there's benches. Well, how high are they? 
I don't know, they're about to hear, you know, and there's, there's plumbing in them, right? Well, what kind of plumbing, you know? So we, we had to basically, you know, sit and, and recapitulate in our minds what a lab looked like. And they, and they had to draw it up and go get plans approved by the city. And, you know, it was like a nine-month process. Nine months was too long to sit around waiting. In any way, that has never been Stan's style. So they secured a temporary space in a town called Sorrento Valley, about 25 miles south of Carlsbad, allowing them to begin running experiments while they tried to nail down a first round of venture capital funding. Here's Dave Ecker again, talking about Sorrento Valley. There was a, a, a huge, like, you know, storage garages and stuff like that. And so we found one and um, uh, occupied it and uh, set up a lab. And, uh, um, uh, you know, we built tissue culture hoods out of uh, two by fours and plastic. Uh, uh, the chemistry area, you know, we had these huge, like, warehouse roll-up garage doors with the yeah. chain where you raise this thing up. And, and uh, you know, we put the chemistry in there and we, we managed to find how you could buy some fume hoods and the like. And uh, 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 um, we, we got started. When Brett Monia finished his thesis back in Philadelphia, where Chris Mirabelli had been his advisor, he joined the team in Sorrento Valley. By now, they were into 1989, a roughshod group filled with enthusiasm and free from the constraints of Smith-Kline, but short on money and material. They learned that if all four hoods were turned on at once in their converted space, it sucked the air from the room and the chemists would pass out. This was bad for morale, Stan Riley told me, and it isn't exactly conducive to good science either but it didn't seem to matter. ISIS was consumed with the mission, high on what they were doing, and proper ventilation was something they'd fix along with everything else when they moved into their space up Interstate 5 in Carlsbad. They soon added Frank Bennett, who had been at Baylor and then did his postdoc under Stan at Smith-Kline. He came on as a senior scientist at ISIS. Why not, he thought. He already knew the team and loved the idea of focusing on oligonucleotides full-time. He figured they'd know within three years if the technology would succeed or fail. And if it failed, he would find a job somewhere else in San Diego. There was always work for a smart bench scientist like him. As Stan and Chris Gabrielli went out making pitches for investment, they realized they were not the only antisense startup around. They came across Hybridon, which had been started by Zemesnik himself with a sharp young researcher named Sabir Agrawal. Genta had already been launched around methylphosphonate technology from Paul Miller and Paul Cho, which tweaked conventional DNA by replacing a non-bonding phosphoryl oxygen with a methyl group to help stabilize the molecule. And Gilead, which had been formed in 1987 as Oligogen, but changed its name, had inherited technology from scientific co-founder Peter Durvan and was being run by founder Mike Reardon, an MD and venture capitalist. In those days, if an investor was going to put money into a certain technology, it would often stop at one company. There was no need to fill a portfolio with the same type of risk. In any way, it might seem like a conflict of interest. So already, money was getting competitive. Here's Stan. We, could, we, we had no inherited technology. My challenge was to prove to venture capitalists that I was free and clear, that I didn't have encumbrances coming from SKB. Uh-huh. And so all of those companies had significant inherited uh, technology, and, and we had none. Without inherited technology, the company needed another kind of validation. 
And the way to get that, Stan thought, was through pharmaceutical partners. A collaboration would prove that others thought his technology was valuable, and it would also bring in money. The company hired the law firm Cooley Godward, which already represented known biotechs like Amgen and Genentech. Their assigned lawyer from Cooley Godward was a woman in her mid-30s named Lynn Parshall, a hired gun, she said, used by ISIS for issues around intellectual property in the early days of the company. As Stan knew well, big pharmaceutical companies were struggling to innovate, and their productivity was on the decline. In response, many were starting to look outside their walls for new ways to make drugs. Three pharma firms came to visit ISIS in Sorrento Valley. Siba Geige, headquartered in Basel, Switzerland, Rome Palanc, a French company, and Isai, located in Japan. All were there based on Stan's reputation. Regardless of his exit from SmithKline, he had overseen large research groups that had gotten new drugs approved in his career. Still, they could not have been excited by what they found upon arriving at the converted warehouse. It was, it was a garage, and next door to it was a junk shop of some sort, right, that, that buy, bought and sold junk. And um, they used to have this big clown one up clown out front. And uh, I schemed with one of the chemists who stole it and hid it somewhere because we were embarrassed that uh, our pharma partners are going to come up to a building and see a big blow up clown, you know? <laughs> I mean, but what about your plastic and wooden hoods inside? That wasn't a, that wasn't a problem? We, 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 were, we couldn't do anything about that. <laughs> Siba Geige was the first to show serious interest. The pharma was skilled in nucleic acid chemistry, and Stan already knew that ISIS would need to make chemical modifications to their oligonucleotides if they were to be stable and effective in the body. Seba's interest helped Chris Gabrielli sell ISIS to other investors. Bessemer committed to lead the venture round, hoped to be $6 million, and Gabrielli beat the bushes for a syndicate. In his pitch, he highlighted the potential of Antisense and the impressive scientific advisory board ISIS had accumulated, which included Stan's old mentor, Harris Bush, from Baylor. Chris mentioned the interest shown by Siba Geige, and he, of course, emphasized Stan. In his notes to potential investors, he described Stan as one of the five most qualified people in the world concerning antisense. Though, he admitted that Stan's time at SmithKline was clouded by recent events. The New York Times article. As Gabrielli worked to secure a syndicate, he realized venture capitalists were already choosing sides. In particular, he lost an investing partner he'd previously worked with, Venrock, which showed initial interest in ISIS, but decided instead to back Gilead. Suddenly, the technology Gabrielli had just heard about months ago had heat to it. ISIS raised $5.2 million in its Series A round of private funding in March 1989. That is the company's official founding date, when the greater world first heard about a small company on Faraday Avenue in Carlsbad, focused on antisense. Bessemer led the round and included investors Excel, Rothschild, and Sutter Hill Ventures. It was no surprise to anyone that ISIS promptly began running through the money. It now had 15,000 square feet of lab space, and it took aim at what the team considered the low-hanging fruit, herpes and genital warts. Given how little was known about antisense oligonucleotides and the general inability to make them work inside the body, these programs targeted a virus's replication, as Paul Zemesnik had thought he'd shown in his seminal paper. It also helped that drugs for these indications could be applied locally, by injection or topically. Here's Stan. We said we were going to focus on local applications first, learn how these drugs were going to behave. Remember, you couldn't make them in those days mm-hmm. either, and so we were going to have small quantities. Then when we cut our teeth on that, we moved to systemic administration for 
cancer and severe diseases. And then only after experience there would we move into the broader disease categories where safety and tolerability were much more important. By the end of 1989, the company had burned through $2.7 million. The only thing on the plus side of the ledger was about $280,000 in interest income. ISIS already needed more cash. Bessemer scared up a $1.5 million bridge loan in May 1990, with current investors participating. But ISIS soon had money coming in through pharma partnerships. Siba and Isai and Ron Palanc all decided to take deals with ISIS. Though ISIS had no data to show them, and it wasn't exactly clear how the partnerships would work. The SIBA deal was first, and because it was first, it was particularly difficult to negotiate. Here's Lynn Parshall, the lawyer from Cooley Godward, talking about the first time she met Stan and the two of them working out the details of the SIBA contract. I met him in a hotel lobby in Basel, and he had with him a napkin, literally. He had a napkin that he and the business person at SIBA Gagi had gotten together you know, presumably at a bar, I think, and written down what this deal was going to look like. And he had called me and said, you know, come to Switzerland. Um, We're going to do this deal. It was the two of us. Um, And plan to stay for however long it takes to get it done. And and that was, you know, ISIS was tiny then and hadn't done deals before. And antisense technology was, you know, basically a research lab phenomenon. And trying to think about how we were going to craft something that was both focused on drugs, but that was going to share science in a way that um, at a very early stage was, you you know, well, if we work together, who's going to own this and who's going to own that Um, in an area that was entirely unknown? with a research plan that was, you know, at the very beginnings of being able to be fleshed out, um, was was fascinating and, and just, you know, really formed the basis for an awful lot of stuff. It was exhilarating work. Lynn loved it. She was not only taken with the technology, but she was impressed with Stan's business acumen. He's an MD-PhD, she realized, and he's thought hard about how this can be structured. And Stan, as always, was an exhaustive worker. Lynn spent her days in Basel working out the details of the contract, and whenever she returned to the hotel, however late, Stan would be waiting. Let's strategize for tomorrow, he'd say. The deal called for SIBA to buy $8.5 million in ISIS stock and supply research money for ISIS to investigate compounds against four disease targets. SIBA had some 25 to 30 employees that could work on the chemistries for antisense. It would also help fund the work and develop large-scale manufacturing processes for ISIS. If an approved drug came out of the deal, ISIS would get royalties on sales. In other words, it was a near-perfect deal for a small, new company. ISIS collected money through the stock sale, and it would also receive funds to develop its own chemical knowledge that would improve the antisense technology. Also, SIBA would help build out ISIS's manufacturing capabilities. The deal would become a model for ISIS's future negotiations. The three-year, single-target deal with Rong Palanc and the five-year, single-target deal with Isai Both looked similar in structure, if not as rich. In 1990, the company spent $4.7 million in research and development money and posted a net loss of $4.5 million. It was clear this sort of spending was going to continue, and Chris Gabrielli began to talk about ISIS having an initial public offering. And I I had pushed very aggressively 
to, for us to get public because I thought we could. And the reason I pushed for that was it was good for Bessemer because we got liquidity in our shares. It wasn't that I was being a charitable person, yeah. but I also understood that Stan needed the open-ended spigot of public money. He was going to run through private money too fast for private money happiness. And we got lucky that the, the window was open. For the public markets, ISIS needed an IPO prospectus. That meant Lynn's talents and expertise. She came in and translated the ISIS story into a legal document, and ISIS went out and tried to build a book, the process of securing underwriters and participants for their initial public offering. In that process, Stan met a man named Stelios Papadopoulos, a Greek-American who had been one of the first equity analysts covering the biotechnology space, but who had moved to investment banking for Payne Weber. Papadopoulos was a rarity in banking, and that he was also a trained scientist. He had a PhD and had been a faculty member at New York University's Department of Cell Biology. He was already interested in antisense and saw the potential in it, but he had not yet chosen a horse to bet on. So I went and I visited every single antisense company that was out there, trying to understand what they were doing, what the issues would be. Uh, to me, it was abundantly obvious after several months of visiting the big ones and many smaller ones. And the only company that convinced me that the wherewithal to stay in the game and at the end outlast everybody and succeed was ISIS. There was just no doubt about it. It wasn't just ISIS's science and the beginnings of its oligonucleotide chemistry. Stelios also came away impressed by Stan's intellect, the force of his will, and his tenacity. Those attributes cannot be taught and they were exactly what Stelios thought would be needed to shepherd this technology through the long path ahead. He wanted ISIS's business, and he set out to try and win it. And so I began talking to them, working with them. And there's a funny story here, which is when I concluded what I should be doing, it was 1990. Uh -huh. The company was barely a year old. Uh -huh. And I was trying to convince them that we should do an IPO, and I should be the lead banker for the IPO. In fact, we went so far as to begin working, and in the fall uh, of 1990, I was in a meeting in San Diego, and I stayed extra weekend in my hotel room, and I literally took these old documents of the business plan for the private placement and truly cutting and pasting in the way it used to be done with scissors and scotch tape, uh, and by longhand, I wrote what I thought was the business section, you know, the prospectus. And, um, you know, I faxed it, you know, to Stan at the time, and we kept on talking. But Payne Weber was a middle-tier bank in the biotech world, and Stan, forever competitive, wanted the best. When ISIS got wind that they might be able to do better, they cut Payne Weber loose and upgraded their IPO underwriters to Morgan Stanley and Lehman Brothers, the preeminent biotech bankers of the time. Stelios was... Hugely disappointed, he told me. But like with almost all things in ISIS's history, the IPO was not without its drama. The first thing is that Morgan Stanley wasn't particularly upfront with ISIS. The bank agreed to take ISIS public, but did not tell Stan that it was also underwriting the IPO for the biotech Metamune, which was set to go at around the same time. That could possibly hurt ISIS's ability to draw interest. Business is business, and banks tend to follow the money. Fair enough. But Stan Crook prizes honesty and loyalty maybe above all else. And to Stan's eye, it didn't look like Morgan Stanley had been either of those things. It was the last time ISIS would use Morgan Stanley for their banking. Later, Stan would approach Stelios and admit he'd made a mistake. And Stelios would become the regular banker for ISIS and eventually join its board. 
Here is the story that ISIS took to investors for the IPO. That it was a leader in a small, young field of antisense. It had filed 22 patents with the United States Patent Office. It was building a 3,000-square-foot manufacturing facility and had synthesized more than 350 novel classes of oligonucleotides. The company had grown to 66 full-time employees, nearly half of which had a PhD or an MD. It had scored some federal research grants, had three pharma partnerships, and a pipeline of 11 RNA-targeted programs against a range of diseases, including their two lead programs, ISIS-1082, directed at herpes, and ISIS-2105, for treating genital warts from human papillomavirus. ISIS planned to start human clinical trials with these two programs within a year. Investors saw potential in that 11-program pipeline, but some of the indications ISIS wanted to attack had no usable animal models, and antisense drugs had never been put into humans. The scale of the problem before the company was enormous. Even a staunch believer like Stan suspected that the current theories around antisense were probably wrong, and to fully understand the technology, it was going to take many years and lots of money. The company had already accumulated a deficit of more than $8 million, and so far, any money that the company earned went straight into research and development. Pitching the ISIS story took an astonishing amount of hubris, Stan said. On top of all that, the public market for biotechs had quickly turned cold. A young biotech company called Regeneron went public in April 1991 at $22 a share, a high price that drew criticism for the lead underwriter, Merrill Lynch. The stock immediately dropped on the open market, and a month later it was trading at less than half the IPO price. Furious shareholders filed a class action lawsuit against the company, and the nickname for the company's IPO among bankers was Regurgitron. Regeneron today is alive and well, with a market cap of more than $60 billion and a reputation for brilliant science. But their stock performance, just as ISIS was trying to go public, hurt the market. It didn't help that the data ISIS were generating in their experiments only raised more questions. Uh, it was really difficult. Uh, the market had closed. Uh, there was a lot of uh, skepticism. And um, we were just beginning to learn that a lot of what we were observing wasn't really antisense. That uh, with the first generation ASOs, we had a lot of pro-inflammatory effects. ISIS originally sought to sell 3 million shares priced between $13 and $15 a share. They couldn't find the interest at that price or at that volume. We had to take a haircut, Stan said. And in May of 1991, they sold 2.5 million shares at $10 a piece for gross proceeds of $25 million. Less than what it wanted. And, as was almost always the case with ISIS, less than what it needed. But it was public now. And that gave it broader venues for financing than it had as a private company. ISIS staged a little celebration for going public, and Stan asked Lynn Parshall to fly to San Diego and join them for it. And I flew down to Carlsbad, and um, Stan took me out to lunch. And now that I, I know Stan, um, I realize he never, like, leaves the building for lunch. He's probably gotten that. And yeah. He never takes anyone out to lunch. Yeah. But, you know, we met at a restaurant, he took me to lunch, and we spent a lot of time talking about his organization and you know, what it, what it needed to go to the next step of maturity. And we uh, sort of outlined who, you know, who was going to fill this um, sort of strategic finance gap that he had, you know, in the management team. And we sort of 
outlined this, you know, young, aggressive investment banking type of person um, who was going to come onto the team and, um, you know, work on BD and strategic finance and a variety of things. Uh And, um, you know, it it got time to have coffee. And Stan, of course, doesn't drink coffee either. Um, As you know, he's rarely without a tab stand in his hand. Um, But, um, you know, he sat there while I drank coffee. And at the end of it, he said, so, do you want the job? She did want the job. Lynn flew home, talked it over with her husband, and agreed to move the family to Carlsbad and become the in-house counsel for ISIS. You can't imagine how rewarding it is, she told me, to not only be conceiving the contracts, but then living with them as an actual employee of the company. Meanwhile, in the lab, no one was sure if what they were seeing in their experiments was true antisense or a rogue effect. But at least now they had an entire team to aim at the problem. They had built a true startup around the technology and gotten ISIS public. With access to the markets, ISIS would now have an honest shot at decoding this technology that had first captivated Stan Crook back in 1987. Here's Chris Gabrielli. One thing I've come to believe is, you know, entrepreneurs are an important part of the ecosystem of creation, and they come with their own foibles, but man, are they valuable to have. And I do think, it's funny, I haven't thought about this in a while, Brady, but I do think that one of the things I'm proudest of is Stan is a natural-born entrepreneur. He has the belief in his vision, the ability to get other people on, the ability to see, you know, years ahead at where things are going to have to go, the ability to go after that, the the intensity, right? Who was at that point, surprisingly trapped in the body of a corporate guy, right? And I do feel that it was, you know, a happy luck that the only thing I knew how to do, he was asking me about these private equity things. I didn't know anything about that. Didn't think it fit him. Now I understand how much it didn't. But at that point in my life, I would have I would have had a hard time explaining why it didn't wouldn't have made any sense. He vaguely knew what these startups were, but he didn't know almost anything about it. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad that I unleashed this force of nature in the right venue, right? If Michael Jordan had stuck with baseball, basketball would have been impoverished for it. If Stan Crook had stayed a corporate guy somehow, that wasn't the right venue for him. He's a builder. He needs his own thing. He is such a natural entrepreneur, right? And I think... At that point in his life, though, he did not realize that. I think the validation that came with the big titles he held at Bristol-Myers meant a lot to him personally. Because part of an entrepreneur is, the beginning, you work for some crappy little company you started. How can you tell the difference between that and the used car salesman or the you know fuller brush salesman, right? But uh, I do feel good about you know getting the right guy in the right vehicle. Stan Crook grew up scrambling to make money for his family. Money that helped put food on their table helped his mother, with her rheumatoid arthritis, stay out of the wheelchair. The newspaper route. The thousands of hours working at the Tech Corner drugstore while still in high school. That is a life of hustle. That is the life of an entrepreneur. Startups are gritty. They need to make do with less, and they persevere. In other words, they mirror Stan's background perfectly. But his youth had taught him something else, too. As a boy, he'd felt he was on the receiving end of the world, at the mercy of bullies guidance counselors, and perhaps most importantly, his mother. He swore that when he was grown, he'd build a life that he was in control of. He thought he'd had that at SmithKline, with 3,000 researchers under his direction. But he'd been shown that someone else pulled the strings there. A startup might not have carried the prestige of a big pharmaceutical company, but now he had ISIS, and he was fully in control of it.
thank you to Stan Crook, now and always, to Roseanne Crook for sharing her memories, to Stelios Papadopoulos for his incredible archival work on this industry and his deep knowledge, to Chris Mirabelli, Dave Ecker, Brett Monia, and Frank Bennett for their stories about the beginnings of ISIS, to Chris Gabrielli for his uncanny memory of biotech banking decades ago, to Lynn Parshall for her insight into ISIS's deal-making. Rest in peace to Mark Skoletsky, who passed away in January 2020. Sound mix and original theme by Brian Flood. All art created by Aaron DeWalt. Hope Lies in Dreams was written and produced by me, Brady Huggett. Go to the homepage of Nature Biotechnology to find the landing page for this podcast, which includes a list of sources, historical photos, and a transcript of this and the two previous chapters. Chapter four will be out in a week. Until then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>